1: NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Probably more so than ever before. This season's premiere episode has left most of you already convinced that not only was Pablo Velez wrongfully convicted, but also that there was not even really a case against him. It feels almost as though the prosecution just pulled his name out of a hat. You heard the only surviving victim directly name the three men who attacked him, and you heard his girlfriend identify two out of those three men as being the shooters. On the contrary, no one ever named Pablo as even being at the club that night. But the state did have a good reason to investigate Pablo, and when that didn't yield any results, they fought like hell to build a case against him. This is Season 11, Episode 2 The Case Against Pablo. The state's case against Pablo Velez Jr. consisted of four prongs. In today's episode, I'm simply going to break down those elements. I'll be doing my best to wait to call bullshit until next week. And since I'm only presenting the state's full case against Pablo, the episode, much like the trial, won't be very long. We'll begin with how Pablo came to be a suspect to begin with. The Gold Cadillac. Let me first refresh your memory on the events of that Wednesday night. Around 2 a.m., definitely before 2.06 a.m., because that's when the 911 calls came in, Adrian Payan pulled into the parking lot of the Perfect Rack pool hall with his friends Escobar and Emerson. Adrian gets out of his car and walks towards Jason Woolley, who is standing by the front door near Adrian's girlfriend Claudia and her friend Alice. Adrian takes off his shirt and approaches Woolley, ready to fight. But Wooly pulls out a pistol and fires a shot into the ground. Adrian and Escobar take off running across the street, with Wooly following behind, still firing at Adrian, who is coincidentally shot in the back through his abdomen. There was also a second shooter wearing a blue shirt, standing next to a gold Cadillac in the parking lot, firing an assault rifle at Adrian. Claudia chases after Wooly as he continues to shoot at Adrian. She sees him give up and go over to the gold Cadillac. He and the guy in the blue shirt get into the caddy and speed away. Shortly thereafter, she and Alice jump into their car, and they end up following the Cadillac. They manage to get the license plate number of the car, and later they report it to police. At trial, Claudia testified that after the gold Cadillac left, she and Alice got into her car. She says that Alice didn't want her to drive because she was too upset. This is how she describes the incident in her testimony. She's being questioned by Assistant District Attorney Eileen Bogar. Quote, Bogar, okay, so you're following a car, and this is the car that you saw the person in the blue shirt and the red shirt get into after the shooting? Claudia, yes. Bogar, okay, and what did you do while you were following the car? We, uh, got the license plate number. Okay, and how'd you do that? She memorized the first half, and I memorized the last half. Okay, was there any way that you remember that you... How could you remember it later? Claudia. Yeah, I got my uh, eyeliner and wrote it on a book. Bogar. I'm going to show you what's been marked as State's Exhibit Number 8. Can you identify this for me? That's a license plate. And this is the book that you were talking about? Yes. And where was this in your car? Claudia. It was just thrown in the car. Okay, and did you write the writing on this or did Alice? I did. And other than having this two state exhibit stickers on it, does it look like it's been changed in any way? Claudia, no. And this is the actual Bible that you're talking about, the book that you're talking about. Claudia, yes. Alice goes into a little more detail at trial. As it turns out, she and Claudia didn't actually follow the gold caddy out of the parking lot. Some time had actually passed after the shooting. When they were headed for home, and they just happened to come across the car. From the transcript, quote, Bogar, after the gunfire stopped, what did you do? Alice, I went to go back for Claudia. Bogar, okay, what happened after that? We were going home. And what were you going home in? Her car. The Lincoln? Yes. Who was driving? I was. Okay, and what happened when you were driving home? Alice. Huh, that car that's... Claudia recognized the car that was... that she had seen driving off, and people were shooting out of the car. I don't remember exactly what it was, but that was the car that was there, and she told me that's the car that the guy ran into. Okay, and so after that, what did you do? Alice. We got the license plates, and then we went back because she wanted to go back to look for Adrian. And when you got the license plate, how did you remember it? Alice. She remembered the first three, and I remembered the others. Did you all write it down on something? Alice. Yeah, I think we did, yeah. Bogar. Were you driving or was Claudia driving? Alice. Excuse me? Bogar. Were you driving or was Claudia driving? Alice. I was driving. Bogar. Let me show you what has been admitted into evidence as States 8, a Bible with some writing on it. Do you recognize it? Alice. No. Bogar. Okay, is that what she might have written down the license plate number on? Alice shakes her head. But you didn't write it down. Alice, I don't even remember that, but I know that we did write it down on something. Okay, and who wrote it down? Alice, huh? Bogar. if you don't remember, that's fine. Alice, I don't remember. So after the shooting, Claudia and Alice get into Claudia's car. She's too upset to drive, so Alice takes the wheel. On the way home, they see a gold Cadillac, and Claudia thinks it's a car that the two shooters got into. They follow the car, and when they get close enough to read the plate number, Claudia memorized the first three numbers and Alice remembered the last three. Claudia then used an eyeliner to write the plate number down on a Bible that was in the car. So, right off the bat, I think that we can all agree that this whole license plate situation is a little shaky at best. First of all, How do we know that Claudia and Nancy were even following the right car? They didn't follow it from the scene. They just came across it while they were driving home. And what if the number was wrong? Two different people remembering different parts of the tag number and then writing it down with an eyeliner. Well, as it turns out, they did get the number correct. And honestly, it's pretty impressive that they managed to do so under those circumstances. But was it the right car? Detective King explains what happened next at trial. From the transcript. Quote, Bogar, how did she describe him? Just what it says in there. King, well, she described the vehicle he got into. Bogar, what was that described as? King, a gold Cadillac. Bogar, okay, and did she indicate to you that she'd taken down a license plate? King, yes, she did. Bogar, did you eventually, did you and Officer Swainson or Detective Swainson eventually get some suspects in mind? Yes. From the information you learned? Yes. Okay, and in particular, the license plate that Claudia gave you, did that help you develop a suspect? King. Yes. And who was that suspect? King. Pablo Velez Jr. And there it is. The license plate number that Claudia gave Detective King came back to a gold Cadillac DeVille owned by Pablo Velez Jr. Which is pretty damning, but let's not forget that Claudia and Alice didn't actually follow the car out of the parking lot. So, maybe Pablo was just driving around and his car happened to look like the shooter's car. But, if that were the case, it presents a whole new problem. Pablo said that he didn't get back into town until around 1 a.m. Then, he had to wait for his trainee's wife to pick him up at the truck stop. and Then, he drove his semi-home, which would already put him past the time of the murder by my estimation. But he also says that after he got home, he took a shower, and then he drove his semi over to his girlfriend's house. So how the hell was he driving his gold Cadillac around town at the same time that he claims to have been driving his semi-truck? Well, According to him, the answer's simple. He wasn't.
0: I had a 1998 uh, Cadillac Gazelle that I, uh, I didn't want anymore, so I ended up selling it to uh, one of my neighbors. And when I say neighbors, I mean like seven, eight houses down from me on the same street. And, um, you know, I-, I sold it to him and I told him we'd take care of the uh, title, you know, when I would get back in town and I had time to do it. And uh, I figured, you know, it wasn't going to be no big deal, you know.
1: As it turns out, it was a big deal. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Pablo testified in his own defense at trial. He explained to the jury exactly what you just heard him tell me. He doesn't know how the Cadillac was at the perfect rack that night because he wasn't in it. He swears that he had sold it to someone from his neighborhood a week before the murder. But unfortunately for him, the jury didn't buy it. I'll have more on the car next week, but I don't want to muddy the waters today with Pablo's defense. This episode is designed to explain the state's case, and the car was only one of the four legs. However, it was the foundation that the case was built on. He says that he was out of town driving a semi, and the jury just heard from two eyewitnesses who saw his car with his plates leaving the scene. Keep in mind that when Pablo first spoke to the police, over four weeks after the murder, he didn't have the benefit of cell phone records to nail his times down. He still didn't have them at trial, for that matter. So he was working off of memory when he told police that he had arrived back to Houston that night at midnight. As you heard last week, we now know that that's impossible. He was still in Dallas at 9 p.m., and it's a four-hour drive to Houston. But nonetheless, he told police in his interview that he got back to Houston at midnight then arrived home around 12.30. He said that he spent about an hour cleaning up and then drove his semi over to his ex-girlfriend's house and stayed there until around 5 a.m. So the next two legs of the state's case both involved tearing down Pablo's alibi. The first thing the state had to do was prove that Pablo could have been at the perfect rack at 2 a.m. They did this by way of Detective King's testimony. Detective King testified that Pablo had told him in his police interview that when he returned to Houston that night, he had went to his place of employment, Cornerstone Logistics, and then he went home. He said that Pablo's driver's log showed him arriving back in Houston at midnight, and he himself conducted a drive test to determine how long the drive was between Cornerstone Logistics and Pablo's house. He determined that the drive was 22.5 miles, and it took him 28 minutes to make the trip, and that included a three-minute stop when he was pulled over by another officer, meaning that Pablo was home by 12.30, an hour and a half before the shooting. There's obviously a lot more to the story that we're going to get into down the road, but I will mention that this whole drive test is malarkey. That's right, I said malarkey twice. Pablo never said that he went to Cornerstone. Now, of course, this is Houston PD, so we don't have any recordings or transcripts of what Pablo actually said during his interview, but we do have King's own report on the interview. King's report says, quote, Pablo said it took him four hours to drive from Weatherford to Houston. He got into Houston at midnight. He drove his truck with its load to his house on Ashland, end quote. Nowhere does it say that he ever went to Cornerstone. And yet that's where King did the drive test from. Now, we know now that there's a lot more details about stopping at the truck stop and waiting for his trainee's wife. But remember, Pablo was arrested a month later. And through that month, he didn't know that he needed to be keeping track of his time or any of his details. So he gives this very vague statement. And King doesn't even try to disprove that statement. Instead, he proves that Pablo could have made an imaginary drive that he never said that he made. So now the jury has heard that Pablo's car was definitely ID'd at the crime scene and that Pablo was definitely back in town in time to participate in the shootout. But there was one more snag the ex girlfriend, Anel. At the time of his arrest, Pablo told Detective King that he was at his ex girlfriend Anel's house at the time of the shooting. Remember, he didn't know the exact times when he got back to Houston or when he left his house. As I said, he was arrested over a month later and he was working for memory given that in the moment he believed that he had arrived back in Houston at midnight, Anel was actually his alibi. He told King that he had driven his semi with the trailer still attached over to her house at around 1.30 a.m. and stayed until around 5 a.m. But when Anel took the stand, Pablo's alibi disappeared. Anel testified that there was a night around the time of the murder when Pablo came over to her house late at night and that they stayed up talking until 5 a.m. But the way she remembered it, that occurred on July 28th, two weeks after the murder. She testified that she and Pablo had been dating for three and a half years and broke up sometime in the summer of 2004. She said that they'd been broken up for three months before Pablo came by her house that night and they talked till the early hours of the morning. The way she remembers it, they broke up, sounds like in June... She testified that they didn't speak at all until July 28th when Pablo came to her house to try to win her back. She says that she didn't get back with him on that night. But two weeks later, in mid-August, they finally got back together, just before Pablo was arrested on the 19th. The dates being wrong was a problem, but not nearly as much of a problem as when she told the jury that after Pablo was arrested, he called her and asked her if she remembered that night that he had been at her house. She told him that it was the 28th into the 29th, and he insisted that it was the 14th into the 15th. Then she testified that he was getting mad because she wouldn't agree with him about the dates. And then this exchange really drove the prosecution's point home. And unfortunately, it was actually a question asked by Pablo's defense attorney during Cross that backfired badly. Quote, McLean, and so it was later on the 29th when he wanted to get back with you? Anell, yes. McLean, is that right? And he wanted you to say that it was the night of July 15th when you all stayed up all night and talked together, is that right? Anell, yes. McLean, did you take that to mean he was wanting you to lie to the police? Anell, yes. Prior to McLean asking that question the inference could have been made that Pablo truly believed that the date of their late-night talk was the 14th into the 15th, and that perhaps he was just wrong. But now they just heard his ex-girlfriend, who did testify that she didn't think Pablo had anything to do with the shooting, say that she took it as him asking her to lie for him. The problem compounds on itself when Anel testifies that after their conversation, she went to work and pulled her time cards. The records revealed that she worked the entire week of the 14th, She testified that she never would have stayed up that late into the morning if she had to work the next day, but she saw in her time cards that she was off on the 29th, confirming in her mind that the 28th had to have been the night that Pablo came over, because she wouldn't have been upset about staying up so late because she had the next day off. Although, her testimony about the dates does get a bit confusing. She says that she was off on Friday the 29th, but the 29th was actually a Thursday, that may not be super important, but I think it's significant given that both nights in question were Wednesday nights, and Pablo was typically out of town working on Wednesday nights, a point that was never brought up at trial.
0: With the Lucky Land Sluts, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Pablo's fate was sealed by an eyewitness ID. One of the witnesses, Adrian's girlfriend Claudia, picked Pablo out of a photo array and identified him as the blue shirt shooter. And yes, you heard me right. I said Claudia. You know, the person you heard last week say that a guy named Shorty was the blue shirt shooter? If you're a little confused, you probably should be. But you won't be for long. You see, it wasn't actually Claudia's testimony that sealed the deal for Pablo was our old friend, Detective Swainson. Claudia was put on the stand by the state with the goal of positively IDing Pablo. But it seems that the prosecutor, Eileen Bogar knew before the trial began that Claudia wasn't going to play ball. This quote is from her opening statement at trial. She's explaining to the jury what they are not going to hear in the trial. Quote, Claudia when she testifies, I'm going to anticipate that she will probably testify that she will not be able to identify this defendant in the courtroom. End quote. Bogar knew that Claudia, her star witness, would not ID Pablo, and she put her on the stand anyway. Claudia testified that Detectives Swainson and King came to her house a few times and showed her photo arrays. The photos were only headshots. Detective King told her to only point out someone if she truly believed she saw the shooter in the arrays. I'll read the rest of her relevant testimony directly from the transcript. Quote, Bogar, and they showed you two sets of six pictures? Claudia, yes, for the two, for two guys. Okay, and were you able to make identifications in both of those of those lineups? Yes. Okay, did they ever tell you you have to pick somebody out? No. Did they ever say, he's in there, pick him? No. Okay, and in fact, did they tell you you don't have to pick anybody out if you don't see that person? Is that correct? Yes. Okay, so you said that Jason Woolley was wearing a red shirt that night? Yes. Was that somebody that you picked out of a lineup? One of them, yes. And the person that was in the blue shirt, was that who you identified in the second lineup? Yes. Bogar. And this has been a while back since this happened. Almost two years ago, is that correct? Claudia. Yes. Bogar. Okay, and after you identified that person, did you ever have any other contact with the police or law enforcement? Claudia. Yes, they still came back. Okay, they came back. And you gave a statement about what you seen that evening? Yes. And about how long after the shooting had occurred did you make that statement? Right after. Right after? Well, that same morning, that morning. Okay, and when you picked the two people out of the lineup, out of those two separate lineups, about how long after the shooting did you pick them out? It was about, about a week or two. So it was pretty close after that. Yes. Bogar. Okay, and do you see that person that was in the blue shirt sitting in the courtroom today? If you don't know, that's okay. Claudia, no. Bogar, okay, but this is about two years after that has happened, is that correct? Claudia, yes. Bogar, okay, and he looks different to you. Claudia, yes, from the lineup. Bogar, okay, I'll pass the witness. Did you catch what just happened there? Claudia says that she picked out a person from a photo array. Then she was asked if the person that she picked out was in the courtroom, and she said no. Quote, Bogar, but this is about two years after that has happened and he looks different to you? Claudia, yes, from the lineup. End quote. She just said that she picked out a picture in a photo array, a headshot only. But now she sees Pablo in person and says that that's not him. He looks different from the picture she saw two years prior. And Bogart tries to explain that away by pointing out that two years had passed, implying that the problem is her memory and not the fact that the wrong man is sitting at the defense table. You would think that this would be a huge blow to the state's case. Like Pablo said last week, he just kept waiting for someone to say his name. The state's star witness, the only one that sort of identified him as a shooter, just said that he's not the guy. But have no fear, Detective Swainson was there to save the day. Swainson testified that he originally interviewed both Claudia and Alice at the crime scene. He didn't take written statements from them at that time, they were just oral interviews. He goes on to testify that he was with Detective King when he showed Claudia the photo arrays. From the transcript, quote, Bogar. And were you present for her identification of the person in that lineup? Yes, I was. Okay, who was in that lineup that she identified? Swainson. Pablo Velez, the defendant, seated left of defense counsel, plaid shirt. Bogar. May the record reflect he's identified the defendant. The judge. The record will still reflect. Bogar. Thank you, judge. Then she moves back to Swainson. Did you hear Officer King give her the admonitions that he gives when he asks people to identify someone in a lineup? Yes. And what are those admonitions? That the person that we're trying to identify in this investigation may or may not be in this photo spread. Take a look at this. You're not obligated to pick anybody out. But go through it, and if you can identify somebody that was present at the scene, point him out. Bogar. Okay, and was she able to? Swainson. Yes. And who did she identify? Swainson, number five in this photo array, Pablo Velez. And who did she identify him as? Swainson, that's the one I saw there. Bogar, okay, how long did it take her to identify Mr. Velez out of the lineup? Swainson, quickly, as she had it, she viewed it for just a few seconds, went over the six photos, and went, that's him. Bogar, okay, and how would you characterize her identification of Mr. Velez? Detective Swainson, positive. It was perfect. McLean tried to undo the damage during cross, but things just got worse. Quote, Detective Swainson, when you say that Claudia identified a photograph of Pablo Velez in a five-pack or six-pack, that's what you call it, isn't it? Swainson, I never referred to it as a five-pack or a six-pack. Photo array. McLean, photo array. Swainson, including six males. McLean, She actually said, quote, that looks like him, end quote, as to number five, didn't she? Swainson, yes. And do you remember whether any of the statements she gave you, whether oral or written, that she described the blue-shirted shooter? Yes. Okay, and didn't she describe the blue-shirted shooter as Pablo Velez? Swainson, she described him as Pablo Velez. McLean, well, described through that, first of all, let me backtrack a second, strike that. The person who was right in front of the perfect rack pool cue place, or hall, who had a red shirt on. Swainson, right? McLean, who was a tall, dark-complected guy with his hair slicked straight back, who racked his 9mm or whatever. That was that was Jason Woolley, wasn't it? Swainson, yes it was. McLean, okay. And then she indicated that she saw a person with a blue shirt out in the parking area. Is that fair? Swainson, correct. McLean, and did she describe that person as shorter than Wooly, and maybe 5'3 or 5'5, five five, something like that? Swainson, not to me. McLean, okay, but there's no dispute in your mind that when she said, looked at a photo of Pablo Velez, she said, quote, that looks like him, end quote. Swainson, no, it was a beautiful presentation, a beautiful identification. Detective Roy Swainson, under rope on the witness stand, described Claudia's identification of Pablo as positive, perfect, a beautiful identification. If this episode seems short, that's because the state's case against Pablo was short. The trial only lasted three days, and what you just heard was the entirety of the state's case against him. Those four elements cost him 30 years of his life, 15 of which he's already served. The four elements were his car being ID'd at the scene. Detective King, through his drive test, proved to the jury that it was possible for Pablo to have been at the perfect rack in time to participate in the shooting. Pablo's ex-girlfriend testified that it was not the night of the murder when Pablo was at her house, and that she felt like he wanted her to lie. And last but not least, Detective Swainson sealed the deal when he told the jury that Claudia had made a perfect, positive, and beautiful ID of Pablo. And if you add those four things together, I can see how the jury might have thought Pablo was guilty. It's just too bad that they weren't allowed to hear the full truth. But you will next week on Truth and Justice. Before the credits roll, I want to give a special shout out and thank you to our volunteer document summary team. Kelly and Marcy played an integral role in putting this episode together. They saved me hours and hours of research by pointing me to exactly where I needed to go to find the relevant information in this massive case file. Thanks, ladies, and of course, a big thank you to our amazing research team who found the case and the document organization team who broke down and organized the case file. I couldn't do this without all of your efforts. Thank you all so much. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of Created in tandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnik, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truth and justice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Truth, and Mike can be found at Gaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.